Chapter Twenty Two, Part One of Discoveries Among the Ruins of Nineveh and Babylon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Discoveries Among the Ruins of Nineveh and Babylon by Austin Layard. Chapter Twenty Two, Part One The Chiefs of Hillah, Presence of Lions the son of the governor description of the town zaid the ruins of babylon changes in the course of the euphrates the walls visit to the birth nimrod description of the ruin view from it excavations and discoveries in the mound of babel in the mujalibi of kasser the tree athil excavations in the ruin of amran Bowls with inscriptions in Hebrew and Syriac characters. The Jews of Babylonia. My first care on arriving at Hillah was to establish friendly relations with the principal inhabitants of the town, as well as with the Turkish officer in command of the small garrison that guarded its mud fort. Osman Pasha, the general, received me with courtesy and kindness and during the remainder of my stay gave me all the help I could require. On my first visit he presented me with two lions. One was nearly of full size, and was well known in the bazaars and thoroughfares of Hillach, through which he was allowed to wander unrestrained. He was accustomed to help himself at the stalls of the butchers, and from the wicker boats of the fishermen, and when full, he allowed the boys to play their pranks upon him. He was taller and larger than a St. Bernard dog, and like the lion, generally found on the banks of the rivers of Mesopotamia, was without the dark and shaggy mane of the African species. The other lion was but a cub, and had recently been found by an Arab in the Hindiach marshes. Unfortunately it fell ill of the mange, to which the animal when confined is very liable, and soon after died. The other was too old to be sent to England by land, and I was thus unable to procure specimens for this country of the Babylonian lion, which has not, I believe, been seen in Europe. The mudir, or governor of Hilla, was Shabib Akha, the head of one of the principal families of the town. He claimed a kind of hereditary right to this office. He was aged and infirm, suffering from asthma, and little able to manage public affairs, which were chiefly confided to his youngest and favorite son, a boy of about twelve years old. It was with this child that, in common with the inhabitants of Hillach, I transacted business. He received and paid visits with wonderful dignity and decorum. His notes and his inquiries after my health and wants were couched in the most eloquent and suitable terms. He showed a warm and affectionate interest in my welfare, and in the success of my undertakings, which was quite touching. Every morning he crossed the river with a crowd of secretaries, slaves, and attendants, to ascertain by personal inspection whether I needed any help. He was a noble boy, with black sparkling eyes and a bright olive complexion. He wore the long silken robes of a tone Arab, with a fringed kefif, or striped headkerchief of the Bedouin falling over his shoulders. On the whole, he made as good and active a governor as I have often met with in an eastern town, and was an instance of that precocity 
which is frequently seen in Eastern children. A cordial friendship was soon established between us, and during my stay at Hilach, Aziz Akha, for such was his name, was my constant guest. From the principal people of Hilach, as well as from Shabib Akha, the father of Aziz, I received every help. Like most towns in this part of Turkey, it is peopled by Arabs, once belonging to different tribes, but now forgetting their clanships in a sedentary life. They maintain, however, a friendly intercourse with the Bedouins and with the wild inhabitants of the marshes, being always ready to unite with them in throwing off their obedience to the Sultan and frequently maintaining for some time their independence. At the time of my visit, its inhabitants were anxiously waiting the result of an expedition of Abde Pasha against the rebellious tribes. Their allegiance to the Turkish governor and the consequent payment of taxes depended upon its success. If the Pasha were beaten, they would declare openly in favor of the Arabs, with whom, it was suspected, they were already in communication. The Hindia marshes are within sight of the town, and the Kazail, the tribes that dwell in them, ravaged the country to its gates. I was consequently unable to do more than visit the celebrated ruin of the Birs Nimrod, to excavate in it, in the then disturbed state of the country, was impossible. Hilah may contain about eight or nine thousand inhabitants. The Euphrates flows through the town, and is about two hundred yards wide and fifteen feet deep, a noble stream with a gentle current, admirably fitted for steam navigation. The houses, chiefly built of bricks taken from the ruins of ancient Babylon, are small and mean. Around the town, and above and below it for some miles, are groves of palm trees, forming a broad belt on both sides of the river. In the plain beyond them, a few canals bear water to plots cultivated with wheat, barley, and rice. Amongst the inhabitants of Hila, with whom I became acquainted, was one Zaid, a sheikh of the Agail, a very worthy, hospitable fellow. He lived in Hilah, where his house, open to every traveller, was a place of meeting for the Arabs of the desert, from Nage to the Sinjar. To keep up this unbounded hospitality, he had a date grow and a few sheep, and cultivated a little land outside the walls of the town. He was thus supplied with nearly all that was necessary for an Arab entertainment. He usually accompanied me in my expeditions, and proved an invaluable guide. With one Ali, also a chief of the Agail, a man of wit and anecdote, though somewhat of a buffoon, and with other sheikhs, he usually spent the evening with me, relating Arab stories, and describing distant regions and tribes, until the night was far spent. Having thus established relations with the principal inhabitants of the town, who could assist or interrupt me, as they were well or ill-disposed, I could venture to commence excavations in the most important ruins on the site of Babylon. Half concealed among the palm-trees on the eastern banks of the Euphrates above Hilah, are a few hamlets belonging to Arabs, who till the soil. From them I was able to procure workmen, and thus to make up, with the addition of my gibors, several parties of excavators. They were placed under the superintendence of Latif Akha and an intelligent Chaldean Christian of Baghdad, 
who had entered my service. The ruins of Babylon have been frequently described, so that I shall here only give a general sketch of them, without entering into accurate details or measurements, and distances, at the same time referring my reader to the accompanying plan which will enable him to understand the position of the principal mounds. The road from Baghdad to Hilar crosses, near the village of Mohavil, a wide and deep canal, still carrying water to distant gardens. On the southern bank of this artificial stream is a line of earthen ramparts, which are generally believed to be the most northern remains of the ancient city of Babylon. From their summit the traveller scans a boundless plain, through which winds the Euphrates, with its dark belt of evergreen palms. Rising in the distance high above all surrounding objects is the one square mound, in form and size more like a natural hill than the work of men's hands. This is the first great ruin to the east of the river, and the Arab, as I have said, names it Babel. The traveller, before reaching this ruin, still about four miles distant, follows a beaten track winding amidst low mounds, and crossing the embankments of canals long since dry, or avoiding the heaps of drifted earth which cover the walls and foundations of buildings. Some have here traced the lines of the streets, and the divisions between the inhabited quarters of ancient Babylon. As yet no traces whatever have been discovered of that great wall of earth, rising, according to Herodotus, to the height of two hundred royal cubits, and no less than fifty cubits broad, nor of the ditch that encompassed it. The mounds seem to be scattered without order, and to be gradually lost in the vast plains to the eastward. But southward of Babel, for the distance of nearly three miles, there is almost an uninterrupted line of mounds, the ruins of vast edifices, collected together as in the heart of a great city. They are enclosed by earthen ramparts, the remains of a line of walls, which, leaving the foot of Babel, stretched inland about two miles and a half from the present bed of the Euphrates, and then, turning nearly at right angles, completed the defences on the southern side of the principal buildings that mark the site of Babylon, on the eastern bank of the river. Between its most southern point and Hillah, and between Mohavil and Babel, can only be traced low heaps and embankments, scattered irregularly over the plain. It is evident that the space enclosed within this continuous rampart could not have contained the whole of that mighty city, whose magnificence and extent were the wonder of the ancient world. The walls of Babylon, according to Herodotus, measured one hundred and twenty stadia on each side, and formed a perfect square of four hundred and eighty stadia, or nearly sixty miles. Several later writers have repeated his statement. Strabo and Diodorus Siculus have, however, reduced the circuit of the city to 385 and 360 stadia, and such, according to Clitarchus, were its dimensions when it yielded to Alexander. The existing remains within the rampart agrees as little in form as in size with the descriptions of Babylon, for the city was a perfect square, Mr. Rich, in order to explain these difficulties, was the first to suggest that the vast ruin to the west of the Euphrates, called the Birs Nimraud, 
should be included within the limits of Babylon. There is no doubt that, by imagining a square large enough to include the smaller mounds scattered over the plains from Mohavil to below Hilah, on one side of the river, and the Birs Nimrod, at its southwestern angle on the other, the site of a city of the dimensions attributed to Babylon might be satisfactorily determined. But then it must be assumed that neither the outer wall nor the ditch so minutely described by Herodotus ever existed. According to the united testimony of ancient authors, the city was divided by the Euphrates into two parts. The principal existing ruins are to the east side of the river. There are very few remains to the west, between Hilach and the Birs Nimrod. Indeed, in some parts of the plain, there are none at all. This fact might, to a certain extent, be explained in the following manner. To this day, the Euphrates has a tendency to change its course and to lose itself in marshes to the west of its actual bed. We find that the low country on that side was subject to continual inundations from the earliest periods, and that, according to a tradition, Semiramis built embankments to restrain the river. The changes in its course to which the Euphrates was thus liable appear only to have taken place to the best of its present bed. After the most careful examination of the country, I could find no traces whatever of its having at any time flowed much further than it now does to the east, although during unusual floods it occasionally spreads over the plain on that side. The great mounds still rising on the eastern bank proves this. Supposing, therefore, the river, from different causes, to have advanced and receded during many centuries between the Hindia marshes and its present channel, it will easily be understood how the ruins, which may once have stood on the western bank, have gradually been washed away, and how the existing flat alluvial plain has taken their place. In this manner, the complete disappearance of the principal part of the western division of the city may, I think, be accounted for. It is more difficult to explain the total absence of all traces of the external wall and ditch so fully and minutely described by Herodotus and other ancient writers, and according to their concurrent accounts, of such enormous dimensions. If a vast line of fortifications, with its gates and equidistant towers, all of stupendous height and thickness, did once exist, it is scarcely to be believed that no part whatever of it should now remain. Darius and other conquerors, it is true, are said to have pulled down and destroyed these defences, but it is surely impossible that any human labour could have obliterated their very traces. Even supposing that the ruins around Hilach do not represent the site of ancient Babylon, there are no remains elsewhere in Mesopotamia to correspond with those great ramparts. If there had been, they could not have escaped the researches of modern travellers. But Herodotus states that in the midst of each division of the city there was a circular space surrounded by a lofty wall. One contained the royal palace, the other the temple of Belus. There can be little difficulty in admitting that the mounds within the earthen rampart on the eastern bank of the river might represent the first of these fortified enclosures 
which we know to have been on that side of the Euphrates. It is not impossible, as Rich has suggested, that the birth Nimrod, around which, as it will be seen, there are still the traces of a regular wall, may be the remains of the second, or that the gradual changes in the course of the river just described may have completely destroyed all traces of it. It may be inferred, I think, from the descriptions of Herodotus and Diodorus Siculus, that Babylon was built on the same general plan as Nineveh. It must not be forgotten also that the outer walls of Nineveh, as well as those of Babylon, have entirely disappeared. Are we to suppose that the historians in their descriptions confounded them with those surrounding the temples and palaces, and that these exterior fortifications were mere ramparts of mud and brushwood, such as are still raised round modern eastern cities. Such defences, when once neglected, would soon fall to dust and leave no traces behind. I confess that I can see no other way of accounting for the entire disappearance of these exterior walls. I will now describe the results of my researches amongst the ruins near Hillach. Parties of workmen were placed at once on the two most important mounds, the Babel of the Arabs, the Mujalibi of Rich, and the Mujalibi, the castor of the same traveller. I was compelled, as I have stated, to abandon my plan of excavating in the Birs Nimrod. This great pile of masonry is about six miles to the southwest of Hillach. It stands on the very edge of the vast marsh, formed by the waters of the Hindiyah Canal, and by the periodical floods of the Euphrates. The plain between it and the town is, in times of quiet, under cultivation, and is irrigated by a canal derived from the Euphrates near the village of Anana. Shortly after my arrival at Hillach, I visited the Birs Nimrod, accompanied by Zaid, and a party of well-armed agiles. This was unfortunately the only opportunity I had of examining these remarkable ruins during my presence in Babylonia. The country became daily more disturbed, and no Arabs could be induced to pitch their tents near the mounds, or to work there. The Birs Nimrod, the palace of Nimrod of the Arabs, and the prison of Nebuchadnezzar of the Jews, by old travellers believed to be the very ruins of the Tower of Babel, by some again, supposed to represent the Temple of Belus, the wonder of the ancient world, and by others, to mark the site of Borsippa, a city celebrated as the high place of the Chaldean worship, in a vast heap of bricks, slag, and broken pottery. The dry nitrous earth of the parched plain, driven before the furious south wind, has thrown over the huge mass a thin covering of soil, in which no herb or green thing can find nourishment or take root. Thus, Unlike the grass-closed mounds of the more fertile districts of Assyria, the Birs Nimrod is ever a bare and yellow heap. It rises to the height of 198 feet, and has on its summit a compact mass of brickwork, 37 feet high by 28 broad, the whole being thus 235 in perpendicular height. Neither the original form or object of the edifice, of which it is the ruin, have hitherto been determined. It is too solid for the walls of a building, and its shape is not that of the remains of a tower. 
It is pierced by square holes, apparently made to admit air through the compact structure. On one side of it, beneath the crowning masonry, lie huge fragments torn from the pile itself. The calcined and vitreous surface of the bricks, fused into rock-like masses, show that their fall may have been caused by lightning, and as the ruin of rent is almost from top to bottom, early Christian travellers, as well as some of more recent date, have not hesitated to recognise in them proofs of that divine vengeance, which, according to tradition, arrested by fire from heaven the impious attempt of the first descendants of Noah. Even the Jews, as it would appear, from Benjamin of Tudela, at one time, identified the Birsnimraud with the Tower of Babel. Whatever may have been the original edifice of which the Birsnimraud is the ruin, or whoever its founder, it is certain that as yet no remains have been discovered there more ancient than of the time of Nebuchadnezzar. Every inscribed brick taken from it, and there are thousands and tens of thousands, bears the name of this king. It must, however, be remembered that this fact is no proof that he actually founded the building. He may have merely added to, or rebuilt an earlier edifice. Thus also it would appear, by the inscriptions from Nimrod, that the Northwest Palace was originally raised by a king, who lived long before him whose name occurs on the walls of that monument, yet not one fragment has been found at the time of that earlier monarch. Such is the case in other Assyrian ruins. It is therefore not impossible that at some future time more ancient remains may be discovered at the Beers. I will now describe the ruins. It must be first observed that they are divided into two distinct parts, and doubtless the remains of two different buildings. A rampart or wall, the remains of which are marked by mounds of earth, appears to have enclosed both of them. To the west of the high mound, topped by the tower-like pile of masonry, is the second, which is larger but lower, and in shape more like the ruins on the eastern bank of the Euphrates. It is traversed by ravines and watercourses, and strewed over it are the usual fragments of stone, brick, and pottery. Upon its summit are two small Mohammedan chapels, one of which, the Arabs declare, is built over the spot where Nimrod cast the patriarch Abraham into the fiery furnace, according to the common Eastern tradition. Not having been able to excavate in this mound, I could not ascertain whether it covers the remains of any ancient building. Travellers, as far as I am aware, have hitherto failed in suggesting any satisfactory restoration of the birth. It is generally represented, without sufficient accuracy, as a mere shapeless mass. But if examined from the summit of an adjoining mound, its outline would at once strike any one acquainted with the ruins of the west of Mosul, described in a former of this work. The similarity between them will be recognized, and it will be seen that they are all the remains of edifices built upon very nearly, if not precisely, the same plan. The best published representations of the Birsnimraud appear to me to be those contained in a memoir of that accurate and observing traveller, the late Mr. Rich. The mound rises abruptly from the plain on one face, the western, and falls to its level by a series of gradations on the opposite. 
Such is precisely the case with the ruins of Mokhamur, Abu Khamira, and Tel The brickwork still visible in the lower parts of the mound, as well as in the upper, shows the sides of several distinct stages of terraces. I believe the isolated mass of masonry to be the remains of one of the highest terraces, if not the highest, and the whole edifice to have consisted, on the eastern or southeastern side, of a series of stages rising one above the other, and on the western or northwestern, of one solid perpendicular wall. The back of the building may have been painted, as according to Diodorus Siculus, where the palaces of Babylon, with hunting or sacred scenes, and may have been decorated with cornices or other architectural ornaments. There were no means of ascent to it, nor was it accessible in any part, unless narrow galleries were carried round it at different elevations. It is probable that the ascents from terrace to terrace consisted of broad flights of steps, or of inclined ways, carried up the centre of each stage. Such we may judge, from the descriptions of Diodorus, was the form of some of the great buildings at Babylon. The ascents to the different terraces of the hanging gardens, he says, were like the gradines of a theatre. There are certainly traces of them in the mounds in the desert west of Mosul, if not in the birth Nimrod. Herodotus states that the temple of Belus at Babylon consisted of a series of towers, his description is not very clear, but it may be inferred that the various parts of the structure were nearly square. The base was undoubtedly so, and so also may have been the upper stories, although generally represented as round. There is nothing in the word used by Herodotus to show that they were circular, and that they were solid masses of masonry appears to me to be evident, for upon the upper one was constructed the temple of the god. The ascent, too, was on the outside. Without, however, venturing to identify the birth Nimrod with the ruins of this temple, it may be observed that it is highly probable one uniform system of building was adopted in the east for sacred purposes, and that these ascending and receding platforms formed the general type of the Chaldean and Assyrian temples. The edifice, of which this remarkable ruin is the remains, was built of kiln-burnt bricks, fragments of stone, marble, and basalt, scattered amongst the rubbish, show that it was adorned with other materials. The cement by which the bricks were united is of so tenacious a quality that it is almost impossible to detach one from the mass entire. The ruin is a specimen of the perfection of the Babylonian masonry. I will not enter into the many disputed questions concerning with the topography of Babylon, nor will I endeavor to identify the various existing ruins with the magnificent edifices described by ancient authors. The subject was fully investigated by the late Mr. Rich, and the published controversy between him and Major Rennell has left little to be added. A theory, first I believe put forward by Colonel Rawlinson, that the ruins around Hillach do not mark the site of the first Babylon, which must be sought for further to the south, as far even as Nifer, has I presume been abandoned. There cannot, however, be a doubt that Nebuchadnezzar almost entirely rebuilt the city, and perhaps not exactly on the ancient site, 
a conjecture, as I have shown, perfectly in accordance with scripture and with eastern customs. An accurate survey of the ruins is now chiefly required. Recent travelers are of opinion that the Birs Nimrod cannot be identified, as conjectured by Rich, with the Temple of Belus, but that it marks the site of the celebrated Chaldean city of Borsippa, which Rich traced four leagues to the south of Hilach, in some mounds called Borsa by the Arabs. Until more authentic information be obtained from inscriptions and actual remains, the question cannot, I think, be considered as settled. From the summit of the Birth Nimraud, I gazed over a vast marsh, for Babylon is made, a possession for the bittern and pools of water. In the midst of the swamps could be faintly distinguished the Arab settlements which showed the activity of a hive of bees. Light boats were skimming to and fro over the shallow water, whilst men and women urged onwards their flocks and laden cattle. The booming of the cannons of the Turkish army, directed against the fort of Hawaina, resounded in the distance, and the inhabitants of the marsh were already hurrying with their property to safer retreats in anticipation of the fall of their stronghold. To the southwest, in the extreme distance, rose the palm-trees of Kipfil, casting their scanty shade over a small dome, the tomb of Ezekiel. To this spot annually flock in crowds, as their forefathers have done for centuries, the Jews of Baghdad, Hilah, and other cities of Chaldea, the descendants of the captives of Jerusalem, who still linger in the land of their exile. Although tradition alone may place in the neighborhood of Babylon the tomb of the prophet, yet from a very early period the spot appears to have been sought in pilgrimage by the pious Hebrew. I visited the edifice some years ago. It is now but a plain building, despoiled of the ornaments and manuscripts, which it once appears to have contained. Benjamin of Tudela gives a curious and interesting description of it, which the reader will find well worth examining. End of chapter 22, part 1